Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite podcast series. We're not about to enter into what's so-called the fourth industrial revolution, where we're going to be connected to devices. And, and that, I mean, if that's it, if that's our future, then we're not heading in the right direction. What we believe here is that if we do things right, if we are ahead of the curve, if we're thinking differently, we could enter in what, into what's called the age of infinite, infinite possibilities, infinite resources. And through our podcast, we wish to show you new ways of redefining a new future. Now, our podcast is brought to you by the Project Moon Hut Foundation where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut, H-U-T, through the accelerated development of an earth and space-based ecosystem. Then to use those endeavors, that paradigm shift thinking, those innovations, and turn them back on earth to improve how we live on earth for all species. Today, we're going to be exploring an amazing topic. It is nanotubes are to space as silicon is to electronics. And we have with us Garhadar Reddy. How are you, Garhadar? I've been good, David. How are you? I'm doing great. I love that you've been good. That's a good sign. Uh, uh, Garhadar has a degree in electronics and master's in molecular sciences and nanotechnology. He's done the normal type amazing things, been to Singularity University. He's uh, gotten a scholar. He's a Shevening scholar at Oxford. But more importantly is a story that I'd like to share with you so that you get a framework for why he's on this program. Uh, I'm the head judge at the Global Technology Symposium in Palo Alto and San Francisco area, the, the Valley. And one year, several years ago, there was a presentation that was offered by Gadhadar about the technology that could be used as a, uh, on, the, on Mars to give clean, fresh water to people on Mars. And it, and it was an amazing presentation in terms of where he was going. He's probably going to go over many of that information, th those, that construct today. But one of the things I realized sitting in the audience is he has one major issue. With all the tech, everything he's built that he's solved, he, or we, as humans, are not on Mars. He doesn't have a market. He has a product without a market. And often, innovations that are created for space are not the winner. Sometimes they, somebody else's uh, air filtration system or somebody else's uh, component for a, a rocket is used over yours. And that's the game. Yet in there, there are, might be eight other competitors. Well, they don't just fold up, collapse, and disappear. What they do is they take their innovations and turn them back on Earth and use them in different ways. I saw Gadhadar's technology as a means to change how we live on Earth. We didn't talk much about it. And it, just last night, I was reading an article about a new motor company, a car company, and several of the engineers are former space uh, engineers working on a car. And so we will find that if we accelerate the Earth and space-based ecosystem, 
that many of the ideas will never make it into space. And I do hope that Gadahar's ideas make it into space and get where he wants to go. But on the flip side, these type of innovations change how we live on Earth. That said, I know that's longer than we normally do it on the program, but it was a, it's apropos to what we're talking about when we talk about the foundation, Project Moonhot Foundation, and he's a perfect guest. So, Gadahar, do you have an outline for us? Yes, indeed, David, uh, have an outline for today. How many points are we going to be covering? So we're going to have three main points, and I'm going to answer three simple questions about why nanotubes are displaced as siliconist electronics. Wait, wait, why? Wait, the, wait. Why. Oh, the first one is what? Yeah. Why nanotubes? The nanotube? first one is why. Yep. The second is what? And the third is how? So it's why, is there anything after that? Why nanotubes are or just why? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's why nanotubes, uh, why are nanotubes required? Okay. And why are they the fundamental building blocks for a space-faring humanity? And what are carbon nanotubes? Okay. And how are we building nanotubes and creating this new future for ourselves. Okay. I didn't think that the why, what, how was enough to work off an outline. So let's start with your first point. Uh, why are nanotubes required? And teach me. And let's, let's hear what, uh, why nanotubes are to space as silicon is to electronics. Sure. So um, I'll, uh, I'll start with a brief context for uh, the question why, David, because that's been something that's been very close. It started off as a personal goal and something that set off as a journey to find out like the reality of the universe. So that's how my journey started with getting into carbon nanotubes. And so it started with debates with my grandfather when I was a kid. And these debates centered about the question of why we exist, like what's why do humans exist? What's the meaning of life? And I was in my third or fourth grade when these debates happened. And he used to tell me an old Indian philosophy that said, okay, everything in the world is just an illusion. It's a Maya. And you can't really change anything because nothing is real in the first place. So you have to just accept things as they are and leave them. And I'd be like, okay, that doesn't sound like the kind of life I want to live. I want to make things happen. <laughs> and... And I, I want to make things happen. I want to like touch things with my hands and that's more exciting. And this is like so ridiculous. And he would give examples of saints who would question and who'd argue. And then he'd be like, so there was, he'd give an example of one saint that my family follows. And this guy had a disciple who used to be very argumentative and his guru one day apparently touched him. He got electrified and then he's like, he got enlightened. And I would sit there and ask him like, no, maybe he was just wearing silk ropes and he got charged up and he just released <laughs> a bunch of electrons <laughs> and that's what happened there so you were an engineer okay. you were an engineer from birth yeah i like to find an explanation of why it is like that and try to prove it myself and if it is then it's like okay it makes sense if it if it can't prove it then okay there's no point in believing that it doesn't just make any sense so that, that's why even now like when i talk to people and some people are like okay we had this thing in ancient times we were like so big and all that, I'll be like, okay, fine. Like, what are we today? Did that lead to now? And it's like, no, it's like, okay, it doesn't make any sense. 
it doesn't matter anymore <laughs> so that would be me i like i just like to see things in a practical way and to understand them and be able to replicate that you know in an experiment so that i can actually feel that and uh, so this uh, as this journey progressed and he, we were asking these questions at the same time i, I was uh, like trying to understand like how we humans exist like are we connected to each other if so like how is that happening and i used to try like once i ran out of asking questions to grandpa and i couldn't find proper answers i turned towards books to read more to learn about like what people have been saying and one book that fascinated me a lot was a think and grow rich by napoleon hill the book's interesting because it's just a collection of anecdotes of a bunch of people who made big changes to the world we live in and the common thread the message that i got from the book was that uh, uh, that every human like if we set an end goal and if we follow through on the end goal and if we are like persistent about it then we can make anything happen and at the same time another philosophical understanding so like a, a lot of things i say are like kind of non linear in the sense that things happen at different time frames but i'm like putting them all in a linear fashion so what i uh, realized was like we are all like particles in a vessel like a uh, pollen grain that's having brownian motion and if we reach the end of the vessel that's when we get the enlightenment we like become super calm and we can observe everything and we lost all the energy and stuff but while we are in the middle of it we just keep moving in random directions so if we choose one direction going that direction we reach the end of the bowl we hit it lose the energy and we get to that perfect calm state and so that kind of became the philosophy of life and i was like okay so i need to be focusing on one goal choose anything that's there in the world pursue that completely uh, do not get deviated and as we go keep going in a direction we'll reach the end and the other philosophy that developed was that all of us humans are interconnected and so if all of us are interconnected then for me to realize something to get on this pathway it has to be something that's a massive and audacious goal that's impossible to do as an individual for which a lot of strangers have to come together so i thought okay if i'm going to pursue such an audacious goal in life then i'd be able to meet all these uh, insane people which can otherwise not happen unless we're all interconnected and that uh, if that event happens then that means that that philosophy of life is true that everything in the universe is interconnected and there's nothing that's discrete and by itself this is this was the basic philosophical underlining behind everything i've been trying to do in my life and the goal i set for myself on making this was that i wanted to be the first human on mars that's the goal i set for myself and then it was like okay so now you have an end goal an end in sight and now how do we walk things backwards so okay so if you have to get to mars we need to have a lot of spacecraft the spacecraft have to be regularly accessing going up there launching payloads or building stuff and for that to happen we need to have rockets that are not the rockets of today we cannot have rockets that are multiple stages when you throw away half with spacex efforts time to that otherwise you throw away the entire vehicle every time we launch payloads but we need something that can be a single vehicle that can go up there and come back just like us driving a car or a truck with just fuel being reloaded every time and then okay to build such a ship uh, these are called as the single stage to orbit rockets what's the challenge what's what's preventing us from doing that and that question brought it back to materials it said okay we don't have a lightweight strong enough material 
that could be used to build a rocket that could actually function like an automobile, wherein you just refuel it, it delivers payloads and comes back down to earth. And so this is how carbon nanotubes came into the picture. I used to attend a lot of summer schools and from the summer schools, I realized that every summer school in the 2005 timeframe, uh, every astronomy magazine used to scream that, okay, carbon nanotubes are the future. They're the way for us to get to space. And then when I put everything together, I realized, okay, the way these are going to do that is by having a lightweight, extremely strong material that is like, is perfectly designed uh, for space. And so that's how the why of this journey started. So uh, a few questions very quickly. One, and sure, I don't normally sure. ask this question, how old mm -hmm. are you? Because I want to get a timeline for my understanding of your educational positioning where we are in the world. So how old sure. are you? I, I'm 33 now. Okay. So at 33, you lived through the space shuttle. Mm -hmm. And before I get to the next question, what was your thought of the space shuttle construct? Okay, so space shuttle, the objective was great, but the execution was horrible because uh, the system ended up becoming, so it, it wanted to be everything I wanted a rocket to be, but it ended up being something that nobody wanted it to be. It was mostly a lot of politics going in, decisions made that were not rational, uh, made for reasons that had nothing to do with science or technology. And it just became, ended up becoming something that, that just bled money and was also extremely difficult to handle and maintain. So, so you were, you were happy of the, when you heard about the fact that they were building it, but when you learn more about the individuals mm -hmm. and the politics involved, and then the actual final product, it was not, it didn't fit the needs that you had, but it was in the right direction. Yeah. The philosophy was correct, but the execution was horribly out of place. Okay, so then uh, uh, the next one was, and it was earlier on, I let you keep on going because I didn't want to ask, did mm -hmm. your grandfather come from a, uh, a faith-based belief in the meaning of life is, and were you, or why humans exist, and did you subjugate yourself from that thinking? Or, I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of, your grandfather's mm -hmm. answer and what made you tick? What made that mm. not work for you? Okay, so he was an, uh, he, he uh, was a self-professed atheist and he used to follow like one particular guru uh, like in India called Ramakrishna Paramahamsa. And his teaching, so what this guru did was like a small anecdote just throws a lot of light about him. So he used to, uh, he used to be a Hindu priest uh, at a temple and he used to worship the goddess there. And one day he got enlightened, like he felt like the whole world is connected. And he got into that phase where like he could just sense that, okay, all of us are not discreet and stuff. And then he decided, okay, so I've gotten into this state from worshiping this goddess. Now, would I get to that same state if I worship Jesus? And he took up Christianity, followed that, and then he got to the same state. And then he took up Islam. He followed everything according to the scriptures. And then he got to the same state. And he just went by different religions. And the end state was the same. And then he came up with this philosophy that, okay, so God is like an ocean. And all the religions are just rivers joining the same ocean. So it doesn't matter which path you take, you're going to end up in the same place. 
at all times. So that used to be the philosophy. And he used to be a self-read uh, guy. Like, so he, he used to, uh, like, uh, he, he self-taught himself. He used to learn about relativity and stuff like that he picked up as a kid, like by reading about people talking about things. So that's uh, how his philosophical bent had been. But uh, as you know, like in India, like it's like when you have the elders, the elders are like, okay, whatever I say is like the right thing and everything else is like false and all that. And I, I just don't like that. I, I like to question things, to know them, feel them for myself and only then accept anything. Okay. It was just that I, when you were saying it, I felt like I brushed over something because you were sitting in a cultural position going back 30 years ago where mm -hmm. it was more difficult than it is today to question. Mm -hmm. And you made that question that uh, something inside of you saw science and it made the jump. Mm -hmm. So it was just, it's more of a personal thing that I wanted to know. It helps me to understand how you had to make a, a big jump. Did your, and uh, we don't, don't want to uh, spend too much time on this. Your father, your family, mm -hmm. how did they feel when you went the science way? So, uh, I, uh, so I sometimes still have friction with my dad. My dad keeps telling me like, okay, you need to like, sit in front of a God, worship, and everything will be fine. Like uh, all your narratives will come out really well if you just believe in God. I'll be like, no, I just can't believe just because you're telling me to unless I experience it. <laughs> so it keeps happening. Uh, okay. And then I think they've now kind of given up and said, okay, let him do whatever he wants. Okay. <laughs> it just, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to add some texture to my understanding of what was going on. Okay. So we've covered the w why you got to this point and you saw the nanotubes. You, how did you run into, you were doing courses, you were learning, you were, what made nanotubes stand out for you at this point? Sure. That's a great question, David. So uh, because of this interest in space, I was telling myself, okay, I need to get to Mars. And so it was all, and there'd been one incident where I, I, I had attended a program in Southern India in an observatory called Vainubapu, which happens to be one of the largest optical observatories. And I got to see the Milky Way in all its glory. And I was just super fascinated. It was just so beautiful. And I knew that, okay, th there's nothing else that's an alternate for me. And I'd been taking up more and more summer school. So at one point, I took up a class where I was in the ninth grade. Everyone in the program were in the four-year bachelor degrees. And they were in like the second and third year of their bachelor degrees. And I was the youngest kid in the lot. And By a lot. And teaching about quantum. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you were talking, we're talking 17, 18, 19-year-olds. And you are 14? Yeah. 13. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, and I was enjoying myself because we were talking gravity. They were teaching, they're teaching about why the sun exists, like what's the chemistry behind the sun. And then we started talking about like the step equations to explain how long a photon takes. Like the professor asked a question like, okay, how long does a photon take to start from the sun center to get to the earth? And I was like, okay, it's a general knowledge question. It's just eight minutes. And he's like, no, like you need to do the math. And he's like, you need to calculate the density function and then look at the step function for random path movement. And it's a couple of million years for the photon to just get to the surface, traveling that dense of a matter. And it was just fascinating. Wow, it takes millions of years and you can actually calculate those millions of years. 
and then once it gets to the surface, it just free and it just zooms in at eight minutes. And that had a deep impact. And then quantum physics that was used for explaining all these, explaining why the stars exist, was also incredibly attractive for this reason. That you could use a theory of atoms to connect uh, and describe how a planet or a star is going to live through its life. And you can tell about the universe in like down to picoseconds and with very high, uh, and you can narrate that whole story. And at the same time, while uh, as I was learning more about quantum physics and was also seeing things about carbon nanotubes, from a cursory glance, what I could gather was that okay, carbon nanotubes are part of this field of technology called nanotechnology. And the core physics defining nanotechnology is quantum physics. So here was a field of engineering, uh, nanotech, that would allow me to work with atoms, build things, and work with the exact same theories that are used for you know, describing how a star works and why it exists in the first place. And that was just super fascinating. It's like, wow, like the best of both worlds. I get to create stuff that will take me back to the stars. And I get to work and play with the same physics that does both. And so it was like a no-brainer for me. <laughs> uh, I'm laughing. I'm trying to think of what I was doing when I was 14. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that brought so the, that's the the at that point you probably did learn or were exposed to the strength, the weight, the or the structures built in nanotubes. Or is that just the start right there? You learned about it and said, I want to pursue this even further. Yeah, it was the latter. It was more like, okay, so there is a material that everyone's talking about. Everyone says it's a fascinating material that can get us to space. And I was, I was just like stuck with that fascination. And over time, I understood that. The, and what I knew at that point was nanotubes are the strongest material that humans have ever known. And it's also formed, uh, the reason for that strength happens to be the way carbon atoms are arranged. So from a nature perspective, we know that that's probably the strongest arrangement of carbon atoms that can exist. And that, that was the only fact that I knew about them. And, and I think the number, later, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, I mm -hmm. think it's a nanotube, which mm -hmm. is, uh, and it's some, unless you're thinking in these dimensions, it's very difficult, but a nanotube, is a, na a tube the size of a nanometer mm -hmm. or smaller than a uh, 100 nanometers, something that qualifies? You can tell me if I'm wrong, but it's 100 times stronger sure. than a piece of steel. Something that's like correct. that. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. That's correct. That's correct. So, and if you, so, so to, to think about it, mm -hmm. you've got this tiny, 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 tiny tube that if mm. you wanted to break it with your hands and was blown up to size, it, mm. it's just massively strong. And do, do, they, do they occur in nature naturally? Yeah, there's actually uh, a very nice backstory to the nanotube discovery. Uh, I can tell you about this. So the yeah, first I, before we get into how it can be used in space, mm -hmm. I think understanding nanotubes mm -hmm. for me would help me to be able to dimensionalize what you're talking about. Sure. So nanotubes, they all belong to a family of materials called fullerenes. And fullerenes were discovered by Professor Croto in Smalley, like 
they won the Nobel Prize for that. My co-founder worked with uh, Professor Smalley, like he was his PhD student. Now, so the, there's an interesting story behind the discovery of fullerenes. Now, fullerenes are exciting molecules that uh, with 68 atoms of carbon being one of the popular molecules, but they can have many other sized carbon atoms. Now, the first time they were observed was actually in starlight. Croto had been observing spectrum uh, from stars, and then he saw a, a weird spectra from a, a, a distant uh, starlight, which seemed to be a variety of carbon that hadn't been recognized. Because until then, carbon knew uh, carbon had only a few allotropes like coal, carbon black, and stuff, uh, diamonds. And suddenly there was something new. And he could figure out how it could be or what structure it had. So one fine day in a conference, he happened to bump into Richard Smalley from Rice University. And Dr. Smalley happened to have one of the world's most powerful lasers. And as you know, like with any man with a powerful weapon, all we can do is like fire it at everything and see what happens. And Smalley <laughs> used to do exactly that. <laughs> so he used to just... <laughs> so he used... <laughs> So I, I'm betting that. I'm betting there are women too who do it, but yes, men like to shoot at things just to see what happens. Yes. <laughs> so, so Smalley started doing that, and Kurt was like, "Okay, you know what? Why don't you also fire some some stuff at the carbon and see what happens? Because we I'm looking at the starlight; it doesn't make any sense." And so he said, "Okay, fine." And then they did that, and they were able to reproduce the same carbon by firing the lasers at a graphite piece. And that was the discovery of uh, carbon fullerenes, that there was a new form of carbon that could exist. And that set off this field that, okay, so you have a, a deep connection to starlight uh, from the discovery. And one, one time in college, I was like, I was in a library, I have this habit of just reading random books. And that particular day, I a book on geology happened to land in my lap and I was just reading the geology book. And it turns out that one of the mass extinctions on earth that happened about 150 million years ago was due to an asteroid uh, that collided, that was a carbon containing asteroid uh, or a meteor uh, rock that hit us. It, it was cause of a massive extinction event. And the evidence for that extinction event is a thin layer of fullerenes all across the planet. Really? So we, yeah. So one, so one of the ways we know that the mass extinction mm. event happened is because we can find these, and I'm going to ask you because I'm, fillerines, is it P-H, is it yeah. R, how do you spell it? It's F-U-L-L-E-R-E-N-E. E-N-E, okay, fillerines. So because yeah. you, because we can identify around the crater or in proximity, we know that mm. the impact was so great that it caused yep. these fillerines to be created. Yep. And, and they are uh, also, the, the, this event happened about 250 million years ago. So this is one of the evidence for that. So when, when we talk about mass extinction, we always talk about the crater, but there's actually secondary, mm. there's actually secondary, um, evidence that it happened because of the fillerines. Yep, that's right. And, and this was a, a very, uh, like this event, it wiped out 90% of marine life and 70% of land life on Earth. So it was a massive event. The 70% of uh, marine. I, I'm going to no, take a jump. 70% of land? 
Sure, 90% of marine. I mean, I, I said 90% of marine, 70% of land. Yeah, I'm on my, yeah. on my notes. Sometimes I'm writing, talking, thinking. Uh, I'm <laughs> going to take a jump, just maybe you can help me, mm -hmm. is graphene as compared mm -hmm. to graphite. Mm -hmm. The graphene product, is it similar structure, design? With this, I mean, it, you know, I'm assuming you know what graphene is. Yeah, yeah. How different so, is it uh, in the in the construct of graphite and fullerenes? Sure. So uh, graphite is made up of multiple sheets of carbon, and each of these individual sheets are referred to as graphene. Uh, that, that's that's the nomenclature for that. Oh, now okay. With nanotubes. Yeah, with nanotubes, the way one one of the ways for imagining them is to imagine the single sheet of the graphene and then folding it over itself to form a tube. So that single folded tube is called a single walled carbon nanotube. And okay. when we roll it up uh, as a sheet, like when we have multiple rolls, we, we call it, it, it has multiple rolls, so it's called a multi-walled carbon nanotube. So it's more like a Russian doll. What do you? What would be the purpose of doing a multi-roll versus a single roll, considering how strong it is already? Sure. So this is where nanotubes get really interesting. Like even though we call them nanotubes, there actually are several different molecules that are present inside them. The multi-world carbon nanotubes are actually relatively easier to produce. They're more like derivatives from carbon fiber as we make carbon fibers more and more finer. Yep. We end up with these multi-walled nanotubes. Now, these are what are predominantly used in the world today. So multi-walled nanotubes have been used for quite some time on car bumpers to reinforce them. And the funny fact is that multi-walled nanotubes have been in use since 1983, while the invention of carbon nanotubes is dated to 1991 uh, to a Japanese professor. So there was an American company called Hyperion Catalysis that still exists that made these materials as filler for car bumpers. That's, so almost every car bumper in the world has multi-wall nanotubes from that, uh, from that work. Now, the multi-wall tubes, they mostly are, uh, are used as a filler material. They are also supposed to be good at strength because if one tube breaks, you have another tube inside them. But they also suffer from problems that, okay, if you have multiple tubes, you don't really know which tube is actually strengthening a particular material. And also it's only the outer tube that's participating in any kind of reinforcement. The inner tubes are just occupying volume. And another interesting difference that exists between these two kinds is these single wall tubes, they exhibit some incredibly interesting uh, optical and electrical properties that have no parallel with multi-wall tubes. You can actually get semiconducting properties from the single wall carbon nanotubes. And the single walls are also extremely difficult to manufacture. Thank you. So uh, I, I cut you off, but I guess we're moving to number two, building blocks for mm -hmm. space-faring humanity. Mm -hmm. I, unless we're, yeah. if there's anything else you wanted to add, but I think you covered, uh, you said you were done with the nanotubes required, or do you have anything more for the why? Uh, so, yeah, on the why, there were like, uh, there, there was two additional points that I wanted to just like put in place. Okay. So one was, uh, we know why, uh, like, so th this end goal of wanting to 
get to Mars. That was the driving force behind wanting to create nanotubes. And over time, it morphed into an even larger uh, desire to let anyone want to get to space in a much, much safer way. And this problem of wanting to get to space in a vehicle that's extremely safe for people to use. So to create that, we need a material that's extremely strong, a material that's light in weight, a material that can withstand a lot of radiation, and that can be a basic building block for these spacecraft. So we need something light, strong, that can resist a lot of heat. And th this was, there was a search for this material. And also for regular access to space, uh, I was narrating about how we need to have vehicles that can get into orbit in a single leap and come back down without losing any mass uh, to burning up in atmosphere. And we also need the ability to be able to refuel uh, in space, like using a common liquid such as water, which is essential for everything, and, convert, and being able to have the ability to convert the water into hydrogen and oxygen. So these are the two main things that we need to be able to have the kind of spacecraft that can enable regular access and enable us to explore beyond the planet. So uh, one is the, the rocket, that's a single stage to orbit vehicle and an ability to refuel. So th these were two main requirements. Okay, so that was, so get to number one, is, is there a second point then? You said the first point was this, getting to Mars you needed. What was your second point then? Mm. Uh, so the, uh, okay, the, the second point was, uh, it, it was uh, the same one. It was just about uh, getting to Mars and getting everyone to be able to get to Mars and the tools required and the systems required to be in place for achieving that. So Those were the two things. The right now, when uh, rockets are being manufactured, mm -hmm. and I think there's about 150 space launch companies today, how many of them are using the this technology, nanotube technology, to be able to build a lightweight product? Okay, there's none right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, and I'll be getting to the challenges that existed and how we have solved them. Uh, and there's one company that's exploring the usage in California, uh, again, to build uh, systems to get us to Mars on using the carbon nanotubes on some of the composite structures. They've just started with the engines and the structural parts will be using the carb our carbon nanotubes. Okay, so I'm assuming later we'll go over the challenges. So yeah. uh, are we ready for the next point? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Sure. Yeah, so th this was regarding what the carbon nanotubes are, what what do they do and how, how are they doing that? So. Carbon nanotubes, as you rightly pointed out, are incredibly small tubes. They're about 200,000 times smaller than a hair strand. And uh, they exhibit an incredibly high strength. They're 100 times stronger than steel. The single-walled carbon nanotubes in particular are incredibly strong. They have a tensile strength that goes up to 130 gigapascals. Uh, what is it? Gig giga what? About... 130 what? Gigapascals. Okay. Uh, what is that? I know it's a measure of strength, uh, but I, I don't, I've yeah. never heard that. Uh, so uh, the, the GPA, it's a, the tensile strength that's measured in gigapascals. Uh, I'm trying so to get my, I'm trying to get my mind around what strength. that means. Because if I told you okay. that it was 400,000 light bulbs, you'd say, 
I get it, 400,000 light bulbs, but I don't have a reference point to what this means. Okay, so it's the amount of uh, stress that you need to apply. So, okay, so a, a good way of imagining this is the amount of force required to, say, rip out a nanotube uh, by itself is going to be about, uh, when I say 100 times higher. Now, the strength that's required for, like, say, good steels is about one gigapascal. And so good steel is one good good steel, like metal steel is one yeah, gigapaxel, and you're saying this is yeah. 130 gigapaxels. Yes. Okay. I mean, how do you? Yeah. Is there anything else on the planet that we would know that has that type of uh, tensile strength? So diamonds, uh, diamond-like fibers are supposed to have such strength. They've been a material of science fiction. Uh, and graphene sheets, the strength between individual carbon atoms, it exhibits similar strengths. So it's, it's a property that comes with carbon atoms uh, and the carbon bonds. Okay, so if for me to reference the thing that we're talking about something as strong as a diamond that we're not possible and we're talking graphene. So this, this material is in human terms is more or less unbreakable. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Okay. So, and, and in the carbon nanotubes, uh, what I decided to pursue was, uh, was the single walled carbon nanotubes one, because they were more difficult to make than anything. And the second being that uh, it's just a nice challenge when you're trying to make something that everyone says is incredibly difficult. And what was also exciting about single wall nanotubes is that their properties are repeatable. So if I were to provide a nanotube today and say, okay, this is having these properties, David, then tomorrow, if I give you the same nanotubes, they're going to behave exactly the same way. And that's a property that's extremely difficult to obtain with multi-wall nanotubes. So that was what made me sway towards a single wall nanotubes. So what these also have in place is their ability to withstand temperatures. They can withstand about 3,500 degrees Celsius in zones without oxygen. And by using special coatings, they can withstand the same temperatures in an oxygen atmosphere too. So which means you can have spacecraft that can do re-entries at very high temperatures without any problem. And the one other advantage that they have is an incredibly high thermal conductivity. So the thermal conductivity of carbon nanotubes is about 2000 watt per meter Kelvin. Copper is about 350 watt per meter Kelvin. So you get, and you can also like, uh, when you, this is a, along one direction of the nanotubes, along the axis, but along the radius, the thermal conductivity is incredibly small. It's just, uh, it gets to as low as like 0.25 watt per meter Kelvin. So in one direction, you have an incredibly good insulator. In the other direction, you have an excellent conductor that's way better than copper in conducting heat. And it can withstand incredibly high temperatures without problems. And we also found some other really interesting properties with the nanotubes. Now, uh, researchers have been that have been using our material have been telling us that these are the ideal material for photonic circuits of all things. Uh, and they've also shown a lot of promise as semiconducting materials. Uh, they've been used in a few electronic devices 
too. And we also found that they exhibit properties of water transportation in which you can put molecules of water inside them and water just travels rapidly. And this property is something that's also very interesting because you have a material that's a very good semiconductor that's also a water transporter that seems to have the ability to hold water inside it. Now, when you combine these two properties, you're looking at a system that could potentially be used for breaking down water. Like, as you know, like water has a low energy to break down, mm -hmm. like the electron volts required is just about 1.2 to 1.4. That's also happens to be the fan gap on most devices. But just because water is transparent, it, get, it does not get broken down by, by normal light. But if you have a way to stop light in its path and you provide the band gap, you have an instantaneous decomposition of water into oxygen and hydrogen. So then that's where it, this property comes back into play as like a potential long-term solution for orbital space deposits. And so these are some of, just a sampling of properties. So you have something that's incredibly strong uh, while being incredibly light, is radiation resistant. Uh, and carbon atoms have that one really good ability. That's why you use graphite in all nuclear reactors because of the ability to withstand so much radiation. They okay, never so, turn so wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I, it's like, it rolls off your tongue. So mm -hmm. we are using graphite mm -hmm. to shield nuclear reactors is that what you, no, you so just said how no, are we they, using they, they, it okay so they used to construct the chambers to withstand the high temperatures in the nuclear reactor so to absorb the heat the shielding is never done by carbon the shielding is done with lead okay. uh, for the nuclear reactors so on the high temperature regions for the heating and for the construction of the rest of the nuclear reactor, that's where carbon okay. is used. You, you, had, you had jumped In from graphite. radiation resistant, and then you said, and that is mm. why, I think that's what you said, and that is why they're used for nuclear reactors. But you were really talking mm. about the ability to withstand high temperature. That's right. Able to withstand high temperatures and not degrading under radiation. So metals, when they are present in a high radiation environment, they become brittle and graphite does not suffer such a problem. So carbon does not suffer such a problem and that's the advantage. They do not become brittle under intense radiation. Uh, so if we are in space and mm -hmm. or when we are in space and we are looking for radiation shielding, we, mm -hmm. you, you can use a sandwich of a, the carbon the, the uh, graphite, graphene, graphite, to create the shield, but then we would use an additional substance to be able to mitigate the radiation. Or, yeah. or so, mm -hmm. is the radiation not high enough, like a nuclear reactor, where there's enough of a, um, a shielding that comes from the actual product itself anyway? Ah, so there are events in space that generate a lot of radiation and a lot of charged energized particulates, such as solar flares or like say a neutron star like emitting its beam towards us. So, or the cosmic rays that are continuously bombarding. So there is presence of radiation and there will be events that will generate a huge amount of radiation. And on a long-term duration, having a material that does not degrade with radiation is always like the best option that we can have because you can be sure that your vehicle can withstand any kind of re-entry getting into you know, the planet's atmosphere without 
you know, becoming brittle and just like flicking off. So um, I'm, I'm, I know this is basic, basic. My, I, I went to mm -hmm. Calc three, I did physics, but I didn't hit the levels you are at. When mm -hmm. a uh, radiation through, for example, the International Space Station or any vehicle is a particle that can go mm -hmm. right through the wall, almost as if the wall is invisible, mm -hmm. pass through your body mm -hmm. and pass out the other side. You mm -hmm. don't feel it, you don't see it, it just goes through you. Mm -hmm. When, mm -hmm. if we're using a substance such as a metal in space or some type of composite, does that, and it becomes brittle as you're saying, does the carb, does this product, the way you're talking about structuring it, will it give any increase in radiation protection? I do understand that it gives the ability not to uh, degrade, but is there any bump? Is it a 1% bump, a 2% bump? Does it stop any of those or any type of radiation from entering into a vessel? No, it would not stop any of the radiation. And in the context of the space station, it's actually protected by the Earth's magnetic field because it's still inside the low Earth orbit. So that's an advantage that it's having. But once we leave uh, the low Earth orbit and get out of there, that's where we face more problems with radiation, especially from the solar flares and stuff. But this, this material is not going to protect us from the radiation. We will need to have additional shieldings or even water, large quantities of water could be used as, as a way to slow down a lot of the high energy particulates. Like a two meter layer of water is what could be the best protection against a high energy uh, emission. So I'm just playing with you here in terms of thinking. And, and I didn't realize mm -hmm. it. I didn't realize that the International Space Station, I don't use abbreviations because it's easier for people listening or hearing to know. Mm -hmm. In the International Space Station, because we're in low Earth orbit, what ends up happening is we are protected enough that humans are safe even though there is some shielding. But if we get beyond mm -hmm. medium Earth orbit or to high Earth orbit, that, that starts to change. And in mm -hmm. essence, if we could get, when we get, rockets to, let's call it, high Earth orbit or beyond, and we could then fill the rocket with water so we don't have to get it out of the gravity well, all that water, mm -hmm. the shielding. We can then fill the rocket with a substance and then mm -hmm. go on our merry way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And if we had regular rockets that could keep launching, we could have like huge lead shieldings that could definitely, definitely protect us. Okay. Okay. Got it. Uh, just playing a little bit in my own head. <laughs> All right. So we're, you're talking about the, the chambers, the high temperature, the, the strength. Okay. So where do we go from here? All right. So now, so here we have a material that's made of carbon that seems to exhibit or uh, uh, have properties that let it operate under all kinds of extreme conditions that one would expect to see if we are regularly accessing space, returning from other planetary journeys. So you have something that can withstand, that can take off from the planet, uh, allow us to build vehicles that are just one single vehicles that can take off from the ground and ability to return to the atmosphere without burning up because of the ability to withstand high temperatures. And the other really nice thing is that even under high temperatures, 
these carbon structures, they do not lose their strength. They in fact retain and sometimes actually have a higher strength. There's like a region where the carbon structures are much stronger at like 2000 degrees than they are at room temperatures. And that's an insane ability to have that you have something that can be extremely strong at incredibly high temperatures. You have high thermal conductivity, so you can like move away heat. You have the ability to also use these materials to break down water to be able to use that as fuel. And so there's, and all of these properties are present in just one material. Like if I had to like point out like which is the ideal space material, then here it is. Now, so why does a material like this play an important role? Like why, why do we need a new material? So why, why couldn't we progress further from existing ones? Now, if you look at this question, so what's interesting is like when we look at exploration, like as we humans have gone out from the places where we have lived and gone out to explore newer places, the trigger for them has been multiple. It's always either been the climate that pushed us outside. So there's a really nice book called uh, Origins, How the Earth Has Shaped Life on Earth that talks about these events. And say when Columbus left uh, to across the Atlantic, it was because he had access to new technology, newer ships, that could navigate the seas longer and he could rely on them for his journeys. And similarly, these carbon nanotubes now finally enable us to build ships that could potentially get out of the planet and come back in as a single vehicle instead of having multiple stages on top of them. And that is definitely going to be the trigger point that's going to change how we evolve into the spacefaring species. Okay. Got it new tech, lighter, multiple properties, and that's going to be our building block. Uh, why hasn't it, I mean, this is all sounds great. And I know this challenge is yep. part, but I, I'm, why hasn't it been used by others? Why isn't this more ubiquitously, uh, this product out there being used on more space tech? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. And, and that's exactly the same question that set me off on the field for carbon nanotubes. So I, I took up an engineering uh, degree in electronics because I said that's the closest that existed to nanotech back then. And then I decided to study nanotechnology with all of my independent studies being about carbon nanotubes. So I was sure that I wanted to have a degree that said nanotech. And I used to ask, I asked the exact same question. Okay, so if you have an incredible material if it's supposed to be the future of space then why doesn't it why isn't it there like there's not a single product around me that's making use of carbon nanotubes and this was uh, 16 years ago and so what what is missing and what can i do to make that happen and the more i spoke to researchers the more i spoke to end users what i understood was that carbon nanotubes are incredible but for that incredible properties to exist. We need an ability to produce these nanotubes repeatedly and to produce all of them of the exact same size. So what the challenge that is there here is, now each nanotube is about 200,000 times smaller than a hair strand. And to put that in a different perspective, the diameter of each carbon nanotube is about 0.8 nanometers or about eight atoms across. So I'm referring to single-walled carbon nanotubes because those are the only nanotubes whose properties are repeatable and predictable. 
So as we produce larger and larger cubes, their properties more start resembling carbon fibers to a larger extent than as a unique molecule that exhibits all of these unique properties of strength, radiation resistance, high temperature, conductivity, and electronic properties. So now the ones that are useful for actually being able to leverage these properties, they've been incredibly hard to produce, incredibly hard to, uh, to use, mostly because they were difficult to put inside solutions. So when you have nanotubes, they can withstand these temperatures, so which means they must be extremely inert. So when you have a, a very inert material, it's hard to work with that such an inert material. It's hard to put it inside a solution. It's hard to coat it on surfaces. It's hard to bond them together. And another challenge that existed was how do you interconnect nanotubes? Like when I produce a single nanotube, it and when you produce billions of tubes, they just look like a black fluffy powder. It, it just looks like ash that's extremely black in color that's just waiting to fly off. Like, uh, like just one context is like a, a one gram of carbon nanotubes that we make, they occupy a volume of about 300 milliliters. So, and that's like, that's a lot of volume and a fluffy powdery material. So how do you convert that into a solid block that can actually be used for building stuff? So these were the challenges. First one of which was, how do you produce a material of such a small dimension how do you produce that repeatedly? And how do you use that to make something useful out of it? And so people have been producing milligrams of this stuff in laboratories for the longest of times. So the, this is, I'm, effort, I'm gonna, this, I, sure. I worked with a company, Nanoblocks, and they used to create, yep. they created uh, a Russian technology. They took a carbon uh, molecule, put it into a chamber, exploded it twice, and the mm -hmm. result was a uh, a material a, a nano block then what mm -hmm. happened was they would t the challenge was in the companies i was working with they were having trouble getting it to a consistent 5 nanometers um, mm -hmm. and that was one of the challenges. it'd be 30 it'd be 25 but this product which sounds different and i'd like to know the differences is this product was then put into a paint slurry and it would make the paint mm -hmm. have a resistance like uh, you could, it would last longer and not scrape as much. You could put it on, spray it onto a carpet for coating where people walk so it would not wear as fast. You could put it into mm -hmm. plastics for keyboards so the letters wouldn't wear off the same way. Is how different is mm -hmm. nanoblocks to nanotubes and, and the utilization? Okay, so uh, I, I do not know much about, I haven't heard of nanoblocks before. So I need to just see the structure and I could lay comments, but there, there have been structures called diamond-like carbons that are used for the high abrasive properties, the ability to withstand wear and tear. They're also used inside automobile engines to an extent. So these kinds of structures do exist. The major difference with nanotubes is that their hollow structure, their ability to have one single tube, and the ability to produce those tubes at a size that's almost about six to seven times smaller than the blocks you're describing. Okay. But to have the tubular structure throughout and with all the carbon atoms being joined in almost exactly the same way with each other. So it mean the same so, orientation? Yes. Okay. So one way we can imagine things is, uh, so when we produce these single walled carbon nanotubes, we find that they exhibit both properties of conductors 
So they're incredibly good conductors of electricity too. So we call them metallic carbon nanotubes. Now, and we also have another form of carbon nanotubes that we call as semiconducting carbon nanotubes, mostly because they have a band gap. And what's interesting is uh, how these properties are produced. Like how do you produce a metallic nanotube, something so tiny, and how do you make it a thousand times more conductive than copper is? And the answer is that when, uh, when we spoke a little while earlier about graphene and about folding graphene sheets, yeah. imagine you have a chicken mesh wire and imagine folding the chicken mesh wire. You have several different ways of folding that wire. Uh, now, in a certain orientation, you will find that if you were to just take one axis or, or draw a line on the surface of the chicken mesh wire to see where, how it's folded, you would find that it's either the lines look like they are in a zigzag motion or they look like they're like seats of a sofa where you have a flat line and the and trough yeah. and then it comes back up. So it like, looks like arms and stuff. So we call them armchairs and chiral tubes. So each way of folding produces a different kind of a carbon nanotube. And each of the folding either leads to a metallic nanotube or a semiconducting nanotube. So you have uh, to have control over the property of the tube at such a small scale to be able to like, get that into such a single individual property. And that has been a major, major challenge. Like, on how do we produce something so incredibly small to, to precision when we want to correct, uh, like we want to ensure that the orientation also remains the same, uh, ideally remain the same. And how do we ensure that it's produced uh, repeatedly too? It's, it's one challenge to produce the material once, but how do we do it every single time and again and again? So this has been the biggest roadblock to nanotubes being adopted in applications and products. So a lot of the researchers I spoke with always used to tell me that, see, like, hey, like nanotubes are great. Like I've worked with them. I've made this application. It all worked great when I got this batch of nanotubes. The next batch I got, I just couldn't do anything with it. No matter what I did, it just wouldn't work. And it's because the composition changed. You had like different amounts of, of the carbon atoms of the kind that I needed were not there. So I just couldn't make the application out of it. So this was the big challenge that existed that prevented nanotube applications from coming to the market. So despite several research papers, despite several announcements saying that we have an incredible feature that's been found, uh, without the kind of nanotubes required to leverage that feature, there's no point in getting a product to market. This was the challenge. Okay, so uh, I know this is a little digression again. I've read about nanotechnology creation and terms such as top-down, bottom-up development. Not a full explanation because it's probably a whole course in this. How mm -hmm. do you manufacture something at this scale? Mm -hmm. Sure. That's a great question. Like, yes, we, we so uh, on a generic terms, we have two ways. One is the... the as you said, the top-down approach, in which we take a piece of material, like say- Wait, wait, to so to be clear, please describe top-down okay. and bottom-up. Sure, yep. So in a top-down approach, we, we take a larger chunk of a material, and then we start removing matter from that until we are left with a very tiny piece that's in the nano regime. It's less than 100 nanometers in size. So that's one way of fabricating. 
for example, if we needed to produce graphene, the, the way it was produced when the author first described it and won the Nobel Prize was that they used scotch tape on a graphite block to pull out uh, sheets of uh, graphene. Like they, they just pulled out with the scotch tape and they were able to observe it under a microscope and they realized that they were able to produce just a single sheet uh, of carbon atoms. And so there you took a large solid block and from there you directly went into producing a nano-sized object. That's a top-down approach. In a bottom-up approach, what we try to do is to assemble atoms, one atom at a time, like put them together in a way that we design the system to operate at. So you're effectively joining a bunch of atoms like Lego blocks to build the final structure that you want. So that's the bottom-up approach, which is way more challenging because now you're looking at ripping out individual atoms and reassembling them in the structure that is needed to exhibit the properties that have already been cal calculated beforehand. Okay. And I know you're not using scotch, or are you using scotch tape? Because you're probably using a lot of it. Uh, <laughs> when you say you're removing it, so is it a, is it a highly energy intensive? Is it a highly, uh, is it a long-term process to get to multiple uh, iterations of the same action over and over and over again to create enough to create the 300 ml? Okay, so the approach I take is actually a bottom-up approach. So the top-down approach is good for producing like single sheets of graphene. That's, I see that as a limitation of graphene. So when people promise graphene to be useful in structural applications. So what they really mean is a single layer graphene that's doing that. And as you rightly pointed out, you like hit, uh, hit the nail instantly. When you're trying to produce a single sheet by using these kinds of techniques, it's going to take forever to produce anything meaningful that can be useful in a structure. So a lot of times these days when people talk about graphene being used, it's really something called a few layered graphene or a multi-layered graphene, which uh, to a purist is like something really bad because it's not really the stuff that's exhibiting the properties here. It's like showing something and doing something else with graphene. Now with nanotubes, I can actually describe how we make the nanotubes uh, in my lab in, in a startup. And uh, th that could like lay more context about things. So we, uh, so the first step I did was to try to figure out how people have been trying to make nanotubes before us. And what people have done is uh, like one method that is often used is called a template process. You can imagine it to be like agriculture. So imagine planting seeds and then growing the plants and then pulling them up. Similarly, we plant seeds of catalyst particles, usually like a D block element like iron or cobalt and molybdenum too. And these are first planted inside soil that's, that's made of alumina, wherein we make holes inside alumina by placing them inside an acid uh, structure because that's natural reaction by controlling time. We can control the size of the holes formed. And then you put the D block elements inside these holes, then pass the carbon containing gas such as methane or carbon monoxide. And the carbon atoms start decomposing, form into these templates that are present in the holes and start growing up as tubes. And then in the next process, you like chop off all the tubes and then you try, you, you can't really reuse those templates anymore because there's carbon present inside. And so you have to just put in a new base and restart the whole process again. This is a batch process for making single wall nanotubes. 
It's also been used for making multi-world cubes. And the challenge was to produce the holes of exactly the same type again and again. That's been quite a challenge, like because it's a time-dependent process, it's really difficult to produce the exact same holes. And you have impurities forming, even though their proportion is lesser, you still have the impurities forming and that's one headache. And the scalability of this uh, method is limited because you're always having to have the templates to be put inside to grow the tubes. So what I chose was uh, my co-founder for his PhD, he had worked on a very interesting process called the HIPCO process. Uh, HIPCO stands for high pressure carbon monoxide. And that's the process uh, methodology that we use in our lab. So what HIPCO does is it, use, it carries out the entire reaction of producing a carbon nanotube in a gas phase. So we inject iron particles into a reactor. These iron particles are in the form of a metal carbonyl and we give them a temperature ramp up. So it goes from room temperature to a thousand degrees in a couple of microseconds. It's just so much energy dumped into these iron particles that they're ripped out and they form single atoms of iron. We give them a small amount of time to re-agglomerate. We want them to form a tiny cluster of a precisely defined size every single time. And we've been able to develop those systems to do that. And that's one of the innovations that NOPO has done. So we, we produce a very small cluster that's, that's nanometer across. And on this cluster, this happens at a temperature of 1,000 degrees. And we maintain extremely high gas pressures. We go up to 100 atmospheres of pressure. That's equivalent to having a kilometer of water on top of our heads. That's the amount of pressure inside the system. Under these conditions, the carbon atoms, they're highly reactive. And we pass in carbon monoxide gas into the system. So monoxide gets ripped out into single carbon atoms. So you, uh, CO becomes C and CO2. And these carbon atoms start sitting on the iron particles and they start growing in a spiral manner. So it's like the, the iron particle starts pulling off the carbon atoms, which start joining at the back end of the iron particle in a spiral fashion. And it starts building out the tubular structure. And we give enough time for the tubular structure to form. And that's annealed within the reactor. So we, we give another 1,000 degree temperature ramp up to just let the carbon atoms settle inside the structures to clean up all the gaps and stuff and then take it out of the re reactor. So the beauty of the process is that it has to undergo several transformations when you have incredibly high temperatures, high pressures, operating in a continuous loop. And on a weekly basis, we currently send in about uh, a million liters of gas into the reactors. For a million? Them. A million? Yep, yep. And we use a recycle mode because the yield that's produced, like even though I send in so much of gas, the amount of gas that's actually converted into nanotubes is incredibly small. So the yield is like 0.0001%, but it produces nanotubes of an incredibly high quality and of a very, very high consistency. We've been able to produce nanotubes of the exact same dimensions for about five years in a row. And nobody ever did that. And last year, like our nanotubes were ranked as the number one in quality on the planet. Uh, this was at a conference called the Nanotube Conference. And that was a crowning achievement for us that okay, we, we were able to produce a material that everyone thought is incredibly hard to produce repeatedly. And we've demonstrated that not just one or two fluke runs, but 
like with multiple years and or multiple reactors just to show that we understand how to do that and we can reproduce that again and again cool so yep so okay so finally the, how. the materials there so are we yep. is is there more to the what or are we now to the how so we're now to the how okay so explain yep. to me how how is this going to happen yep. Yep. So the, uh, as I was uh, saying, the first major challenge was about producing the carbon nanotubes themselves. And this is the challenge that we have now solved finally, that we have a way of producing nanotubes in a manner that's repeatable, that's, uh, that could be cost effective. Even now we're able to like, we made sure that the, the base raw material costs are incredibly low, even though the tech costs were high, but it scales down rapidly. Uh, in cost and the next thing was okay so now you have an incredible material now how do we get it to people's hands and what we found was okay the best way of doing that is to actually show people on how to use nanotubes now we know that i want to build a spacecraft but that spacecraft is not there today right now so but with such an incredible material with such incredible properties there are a lot of problems on earth that we can solve right now and so we thought okay so now that there is a material, people have been talking about applications and we have a way of realizing all of them. We started reaching out to people and telling them like, hey, you know what, this material exists and we can solve this problem for you and this is how we can do that. And we started that by demonstrating real world solutions to people. So one such solution was actually water filtration because in the Indian context, water has become a major problem, especially the state I come from, where like severe droughts followed by bad water management practices has degraded the environment drastically. And while looking at that, we realized that our nanotubes are actually a magical solution. Even for, for, for it's like any problem you showcase, nanotubes have a way of solving it in ways that's unimaginable for any other material. There were a few research articles that came out that suggested that nanotubes could actually be incredibly good water filters and that they could outperform reverse osmosis membranes by a factor of 100 to 1000. And, and the most important requirement to achieve this property was that the tubes had to have a very specific size. So these were works that were published by both MIT and Lawrence Livermore National Lab from Berkeley. So they said that the size of about 0.8 nanometers was calculated to be the best for purifying water through membranes that actually function 100 times better than even natural membranes. So, and it turns out that the tubes that we make, the mean diameter of them is 0.8 nanometers. So we thought, okay, so this seems straightforward. So the challenge here is people don't have these nanotubes in large quantities and we produce them in such large quantities. So let's make water filter and see how it works. And we've been able to prototype them and we've been able to demonstrate filters that are already performing at 10 times the performance of an RO membrane. Now this is something that's insanely good because there's RO membrane technology development took quite a few decades. And the increments in improvement have only been a few percentage. And then you have something here that's already- what, what's, the, what's, the call, what's the name of the membrane again? I didn't catch it. Uh, the reverse osmosis membrane, RO River membranes. osmosis, okay. Yes. You said it very fast. <laughs> Shit, sorry. Oh, no problem. Yeah. So, I'm trying to yeah. figure it out. Okay. Sure. So now you have, uh, so and reverse osmosis membranes are quite, popular in India right now because they're useful for removing salt uh, by using a high pressure instead of distillation. They're like much better than that. 
but uh, RO membranes, uh, reverse osmosis membranes, are also waste a lot of water. Like to purify every liter, we have to throw away two liters of water. And in a drought-infected place, like throwing so much water is not worthwhile at all. And the nanotube membranes solved that problem. They and we did the costing for them and looked at okay, how do we use that in a real world? Like say a company using RO membranes, how could they improve their profitability by using these? And we found that actually they would require only one tenth of the membranes they currently use. It could be enormously profitable for them to just have these nanotubes to be used in the way that we've showcased how to do that. So that was one problem that it solved. And uh, we also received a request for like designing something that could be a super black coating for use on a future spacecraft from India. And we helped develop that. Like the best thing was since we had our own nanotubes, it only took us 24 hours to showcase the first prototype of this black coating that could absorb a lot of light. And this uh, agency that was working on this uh, for a long time, they couldn't build that. And we were able to do it like within 24 hours, we could show a demonstration, then we worked with them. And we finally space qualified the material along with their support. And later, there's another problem that popped up. It was uh, like a work that we're doing uh, that we're doing as part of a program with Lockheed. Uh, we are trying to use the nanotubes uh, as a way of protecting aircraft against lightning. And that's a very exciting application. And there again, the nanotubes and our ability to produce consistent nanotubes has played a major role. And so it's like we're able to find problems and we're able to say, okay, so there's this problem, no existing solution. Nanotubes can be the solution. This is how it can be used. And this is how it works. And here we are to help you solve that problem. So that's how we've been approaching it. And so even though like we, we haven't gotten to building our spacecraft yet, we realized that with the magical material we have created, we can solve so many problems on the ground, which otherwise do not have a solution. And at the same time, we are always conscious and cognizant that, okay, so the reason we exist is because we wanted to realize these space futures. And so we work with a lot of the academics who are like uh, in turn working on space programs. So we're trying to get these water filters to be tested on the... Mm -hmm. Two questions. Uh, sure. The, uh, well, one question, one comment, or two mm -hmm. questions. The first one is, can you break down the mm -hmm. organic carbon nanotube if you don't want it anymore? Is there a material or is there a, a, a process to take something that's created and destroy it and use it again? Or uh, what, do you, what is the waste product? Yes. Yep. So carbon nanotubes are incredibly easy to destroy. All you have to do is uh, heat them with oxygen and it turns into carbon dioxide. And the carbon dioxide can be converted back into carbon monoxide and then we can reuse that to produce the nanotubes again. So, so it's it a recyclable it's a recyclable product. Yep. Okay. It, it is and it it's uh, like Life is all carbon, so it just comes back and goes back into being carbon. And, so, I, and I thought that was the mm -hmm. case, and that's the way I've described mm -hmm. this product to other people, is that it's an organic, it can be reutilized, restructured, reformed. And, yeah. and I think I said it in the video, Macedonia's, I said, if you're on Mars, mm -hmm. you can't go to the filter store down the street. There is none. Mm. So by having yep. an organic product, you could reuse, recreate whenever is necessary. 
because you're you're yeah. working with carbon uh, with carbon atoms. So, okay, that's the the first one. When yeah. you re are the Macedonia or other things that we've spoken about, when I share with you that the fact that Project Moon Hut is about accelerating mm -hmm. innovations that in can turn around and be used back on Earth and when you hear that in the construct of the foundation, does it make mm. a lot of sense to you that you are the epitome of a space person, a we're, we're more moon, but you're a space person, and you desire to solve a challenge for space, and as a result of it, thinking in paradigm-shifting ways, understanding you have to worry about radiation or the conductivity, all of the factors we've spoken about and that they're being used on earth. Does it really make sense when you hear the foundation's directives? Yeah, it does. To me, it's like, okay, it's, it's like a natural extension. It's like a natural description of what we're doing, not even an extension because we started with the main goal of like, okay, get to Mars. And then now what we're doing is disrupting every sector. And when I watch any science fiction TV, like say expanse and I look at their screens and everything, I'll be like, Okay, so there's only one way of building those screens, and that's with carbon nanotubes, and this is how we do it. And then it's like, okay, can we have a small program to build those things? And yes, we can do that. And the only critical thing that's not there for people to build it is nanotubes, and I have so much of it. So it's just super exciting because now we can redefine the future. We can build it the way we want it. And it's all derived from just one de desire, and that's driven by space. And so that's super exciting that we can change so many things on, the, on Earth right now and those changes again fund more progress towards getting us into space while making lives here so much more better it's i i feel honored or amazed that i not that i discovered you as a person but that we we ran into each other and that i was in the right place at the right time to hear what you had to say and the project moonhead initiative the foundation and what we're working on it was almost as if you landed in front of me, and if I didn't see it, I was an idiot. But I saw it, and it's been four years before brought you onto the program and done because we had to get to certain phases. But you're, you exemplify the exact same construct that was created in 2014 when I sat with Bruce Pittman in mm -hmm. Silicon Valley to describe how we can achieve space, become part of this Mirth construct, moon and earth, and yet at the same time solve climate change, mass extinction, resource depletion, social displacement, political unrest, and exponential impact category that we have. So it's, it's phenomenal to hear the journey and, and how you've been able to, to take the, uh, this, nanotube technology uh, any you, any i know you're not a, a futurist so i'm telling you to put on your your space cap mm -hmm. how do you see it panning out with nanotubes okay, timeline price be... whatever mm -hmm. sure definitely so I see a very exciting future coming up uh, right, right around the corner. 
So mainly, this is going to be a future that's driven by the availability of nanotubes. So the problem of producing something of a very high consistency and quality has been solved. The scalar problem, we have solved that by bringing on board an expert, uh, the guy who helps scale up the PlayStation processor. So he's like helping and guiding us towards like establishing a consistent operational process for producing more of these nanotubes for more applications. But the future I see is nanotubes redefining certain areas of our lives, starting with electronics. Uh, so I already told about water, how we are redefining, how we filter water and produce like higher quality water for more people, which otherwise isn't accessible and also at a lower cost than ex exists today. And electronics, I see these nanotubes enabling transparent electronics, transparent devices and, and transistors. I also see nanotubes as the material that could give a good fight towards rare earth materials. Like right now, rare earths are mined out of forests after destroying a lot of regions. But when you have the ability to create a material with the properties you want, and especially the exotic properties that are otherwise inaccessible, and this is completely man-made, then you don't need to destroy the forest to produce that. And that's one huge thing that nanotubes will change. And nanotubes have been proposed by several researchers as a replacement for some of the exotic earths, which otherwise would destroy several rainforests and exotic habitats for animals. And the next thing is when it comes to the materials required for space, because that's always been an important thing for us. So we've figured out how to actually make nanotubes into a solid structure. So that's a research program that's going on right now. So we found that you have materials called carbon-carbon, which is carbon fibers embedded inside carbon structures, which exhibit incredibly high strengths. These structures have been known for a long time. But it also turns out that when you need to have a very high strength for these structures, people actually load them up with iron particles and then grow tubular structures inside them. And when we analyzed those images that people had produced, they look exactly like carbon nanotubes. So our hypothesis is that if we are able to embed nanotubes inside these structures, then we should be able to produce similar high strength structures. So that's another area of interest. Some people have tried that, but the methods for doing them are hard and we're getting there slowly. So if, so I, get you, be, if I get you right, it's almost a similar to with concrete adding fiberglass. Yes, with the concrete being carbon and fiberglass being carbon. Right, so just to, for, for those who are listening in and breaking out of this for a moment, when you want to create cement, one uh, improved tinsel strength of cement or for colder weather, there's all different conditions. Sometimes fiberglass is put inside the cement mixture and it gives it a, a strengthening material that helps the concrete to be able to withstand other types of extreme conditions. So you're, we're talking the same thing here too. Yeah. And uh, so with one of the interactions I had with the British uh, Interplanetary Space Society, so what the guys had to say was like, it's a great nanotubes individually are incredibly strong, but when we just put them together, they don't exhibit the same high strength because you're just like laying up a bunch of tubes and expecting them to join each other. But we need to actively have interconnections and that's when we'll have like this really strong material. And these carbon-carbon structures are exactly that, like interconnected carbon nanotubes forming one uniform long structure. So that has the incredible high strength. 
so that's our next challenge on okay so it was like we didn't have nanotubes now we have the best nanotubes on the in the world and now we're using them to create these structures and so that's the next exciting thing we are doing uh, and, and over the next three to four years we expect like to make a huge amount of progress on this and being able to finally showcase to the world like whatever i've been promising for the longest time that nanotubes <laughs> are going to be the building blocks i'll be able to hold it up to the world well i've been i've been a fan of yours from the beginning so i i, I don't know if that counts that and that and a few rupees and you'll be able to buy something uh yes. <laughs> but fantastic i i i love the journey i love what you've done and this is very helpful to understanding even just the overall construct of new material sciences that are necessary for space exploration that are happening either by visibility, they, there's not much visibility, there's not enough capital being input. Yet if we want to be, and I'll talk moon and earth, of continually flying back and forth from the moon so that we have this space economy that is created, the, the faster we can create new raw material, new materials, the faster we can redesign, reconstruct uh, vehicles, vessels, rovers, whatever, the, the cost will drop significantly and we can achieve that space economy and that will change or help to create the age of infinite. I don't know if I said that well, but hopefully I did. So I want to thank you, uh, Gadhadar, for taking the time and being on the program. I thank you very, very, very much. Thank you, David. It was really nice talking to you. Uh, I want to take a, uh, thank all of you out there who are also listening, taking the time to spend the time to find out more about how we can accelerate the Earth and space-based ecosystem with the Age of Infinite. And I do hope you've learned something today that will make a difference in your life and the lives of others, that you can take what you've learned and apply it someplace uh, today or in the future. And again, the Project Moonhot Foundation is we're looking to uh, help to establish that box of the roof and the door on the moon, the moon hut. And it's through the acceleration and development of that earth and space-based ecosystem, which is exactly what we talked about today. And then using that paradigm shifting and those innovations and turn them back on earth, just as we've heard today, so that we can improve life on earth for all species. And so I, is there one best way that individuals can connect with you if they wish to? Yes, uh, so I, I would, uh, I'm accessible on my email or on LinkedIn. Email uh, would be gadadar at nopo.in. So it's spelled G-A-D-H-A-D-A-R-N-O-P-O at, what was the? Uh, no, it, uh, sorry, I'll say that again. It's G-A-D-H-A-D-A-R. Yep. at the rate N-O-P-O dot I-N. Okay. Uh, and if you're looking to connect with me, it's David at projectmoonhut.org. You can connect with us at, at Project Moonhut on Twitter or at Goldsmith. Uh, LinkedIn and Facebook, we're on both of them. Uh, thank you all for taking the time today to listen in. And with that said, I'm David Goldsmith. And thank you for listening.